Um, well, good afternoon, everybody, um, and welcome to the Royal Irish Academy. Uh, my name is James Quinn, and I'm the editor of the Dictionary of Irish Biography, which, along with the Academy Library and the Folklore Nua Gaelga, is one of the partners in this series of talks, which examines the contributions of a number of um, 19th century scholars to the development of various fields such as Celtic studies, the Irish language, lexicography, archaeology, and antiquarian and historical research. And just as the Academy did valuable work in these areas in the 19th century, so it continues to do so in the 21st century with projects such as the Historic Towns Atlas, the Documents on Irish Foreign Policy, the Folklore Nua Gaelga, the Dictionary of Medieval Latin from Celtic Sources, and the Dictionary of Irish Biography. Um, today's speaker, Dr. Linda Lunny, is the long-serving editorial secretary of the Dictionary of Irish Biography and is the only current member of the DIB who was actually there right at the beginning of the project. Uh, Linda is originally from North Antrim and has a particular interest in the literature and language of 18th century Ulster. But uh, Linda is no narrow specialist. She's one of the most versatile scholars that I know and has the distinction of having written more articles in the Dictionary of Irish Biography than any other scholar. On last count, it was actually, I think, 699. So, so it's not inconceivable that sometime in the 22nd century, we might have another scholar up here on this very podium giving a talk on Dr. Linda Lunny and her many articles. Today, though, Linda will speak on the scholarships and friendships of William Reeves. Well, thank you, James, for those kind words. It's very, very pleasing to hear that I am almost at the 700 article mark. I must have a special celebration in about two days when I get to the end of 700. And it gives me great pleasure to be speaking to you today about William Reeves. The Irish book lover in 1911 wrote, no more notable figure in the field of Irish antiquities and Irish bibliography ever lived than William Reeves, which is a considerable claim. I hope that you will see that it is justified, and I hope that you will also see why William Reeves is one of my heroes. And why that is, I hope, will become clear. And I'm also delighted to be speaking about a former president of the Royal Irish Academy in the very room where for 40 years he would have attended meetings and where he himself gave many addresses. Almost 60 papers by Reeves are in the Academy's proceedings and most of them would have been read, if not from this precise podium, from this end of the room. He was a member of the Academy from 1846, secretary in 1861, and he was president when he died in 1892, only a few weeks after his presidential address. I didn't figure out a way to check it, but I think he must be one of the few presidents of the Academy who have died in office. Although he was born almost exactly 200 years ago, on either the 15th or the 16th of March in 1815, in his grandfather's house in Charleville in County Cork, and he was educated in Dublin. I 
think his career is so strongly northern in its focus that I am hereby claiming him as a northerner. William Reeves's father, Bowles Reeves, was a solicitor in Cork. The mother, however, Mary Roberts, who was apparently a great influence on William and his brothers and sisters, she was northern by background. She was the granddaughter of William Watts Gare, who was one of two brothers who held the important posts as clerks to the pre-1800 House of Lords, on whose benches, I can point out to you, you are sitting. These are the House of Lords benches. Uh, William Watts Gare was from Lisburn in County Antrim, and he was married to Catherine Jones from Belfast. The Jones and Gayer connections are very interesting, and if I had time, I would take you through the ramifications and relationships within Northern Irish gentry, Huguenots and notables. But there isn't time, and I'll just give you a few pointers. William Reeves, descended from Valentine Jones, who died 1805 in Belfast, and he had a son, a grandson, and a great-grandson, and they were all called Valentine Jones. And apparently all four Valentine Joneses danced together at a ball in Belfast, when, although the eldest generation of Valentines was in his 90s, he displayed great vigor and hilarity. And apparently he had a party trick where he could twirl a carafe full of wine without spilling a drop. Two of his descendants, two Joneses, married the two Gayer brothers. William Reeves's great-aunt Henrietta Jones married the other Gayer brother. And Henrietta Gayer is one of the early Methodists in the north of Ireland. And she gave away almost all her fortune to charities. And her son, in turn, was a clergyman, the Reverend Robert Gayer, and he died in 1848 of typhus fever caught from his poor parishioners in Kerry after the famine. So perhaps the Jones ancestry suggests where some of William Reeves's personality came from, the light-hearted energy alongside the selfless self-sacrifice. Another interesting Jones connection I turned up in the course of doing this research Margaret Jones of Kilwaterhouse in County Antrim, who was possibly a second cousin of Reeves's. I'm not quite sure about how the generations link up, but she was one of the three or four women who subscribed to buy a copy of an edition of the Irish version of the Historia Britonum of Nennius, which was published in 1848. And she was a member of the Irish Archaeological Society in 1844. And so she must have been one of the first generation of Irish women to be interested in such scholarly pursuits in her own right. And there's another pioneering woman in the connection. She's a granddaughter of William Reeves. Alice Reeves was a hospital matron in Dublin and was the first Irish woman to be awarded the Florence Nightingale Medal by the International Red Cross. Now, my subject today, William Reeves, was in many ways a typical Victorian scholar and churchman. And we wonder nowadays 
How on earth they got through so much work? And they did it without typewriters, telephones, computers, photocopiers, cars, emails, etc. And in the case of William Reeves, I can tell you how he did it. He got up at six o'clock every morning to work on his scholarly projects, sometimes even earlier. And when he could, he worked all day and all evening on his projects, sometimes taking an hour between seven and eight o'clock in the evening for social relaxation. He never took a holiday and he never, it is said, gave over his work even to listen to music unless he felt it his duty to go to a concert in Armagh. He wrote mostly with a quill pen and he preferred to write standing at a desk made to suit him. He was a big tall man and he had his feet in a bag of wool because he never would have a fire in his room. Working like that for 60 years, he produced some of the most important works on early Ireland, even though he was never able to be a full-time scholar. Instead, Reeves was educated in Trinity College to become a clergyman in the Church of Ireland. He was a good student. He was awarded a scholarship, won the Hebrew Prize, and then, when he graduated, he was still too young to be ordained. So he went back in 1835 and studied medicine. And he graduated MB two years later with the intention that he could prescribe for his poorer parishioners who weren't able to afford doctor's fees. And interestingly, years later, at a meeting of Ballymena Literary Society in 1859, he delivered a two-hour extemporaneous lecture on the circulation of the blood, illustrated by numerous beautifully executed physiological drawings, which were presumably his own work. And I would say not many clergymen then or since could have done that. It's recorded that when he was a medical student, he was so excited and enthralled by anatomy that he wanted to keep working on the cadaver after hours. So he either cut up or in some other fashion removed the cadaver's limbs and wrapped them up and carried them back to his rooms. But on the way, he encountered a policeman, which panicked him so much that he dumped them. I'm not sure how he explained that to his supervisor, but the intentions, I'm sure, were good. It sounds as though his scientific approach would have made him an excellent doctor. His teachers in the medical school were most disappointed that he wasn't going to have a career in medicine. And later, he was made an honorary fellow of the College of Physicians. He was ordained deacon on the 18th of March, 1838, in other words, just two or three days after he reached the canonical age for, for being ordained. And he was ordained priest in 1839 and served as a curate in the Church of Ireland Parish of Lisburn from 1838 to 41. And he was a dedicated pastoral clergyman. He would walk often, several times a week, the length and breadth of the parish, 10 miles in any direction, to visit parishioners and hold services. 
Then, in 1841, he was appointed to be perpetual curate in the parish of Kilconriola in County Antrim. And that's the, the parish in which Ballymena lies. That's the, the old church that Reeves would have known. And apparently, he, they think he lived in the house beside the church there. His time in these northern parishes was the happiest in his life. He was recently married with a growing family, and he made himself greatly beloved by his parishioners, even the Presbyterians, who were not generally well disposed to the Church of Ireland, to put it mildly. A Presbyterian who knew him when he served in Lisburn wrote, when he removed from this charge in which he was universally beloved, a public testimonial was universally agreed upon. I had the honour of not only contributing to it, but of bearing my testimony to the excellence of one whose loss to the community was everywhere lamented. Praise indeed, especially from a northern dissenter, and after he had been only three years in the parish. After six years in Ballymena, on a clergyman's salary of £130 a year, Reeves was appointed to be headmaster of the diocesan school in the town. That increased his salary by 120, so that must have helped his finances, but obviously more than doubled his workload. The school prospered. He was able to employ assistants, but even so, his responsibilities were considerable. And this is a, a time of his life that we know quite a bit about. Clearly, he influenced a lot of his pupils, some of whom boarded and may have boarded with him in his own family. And one of them published or wrote reminiscences. He remembered that the headmaster was stern in appearance until he smiled, and then his face bore pleasant sweetness. He was a most conscientious disciplinarian. When at school, all attention must be paid to lessons. Then, when they were over, as much amusement as we liked. He was very fond of all outdoor pursuits, and but few could compete with him as a pedestrian, an exercise he was partial to up to the latest days of his busy life. It was his custom at three o'clock, when the school was dismissed, to engage in a game of handball with the boys, and many a rattling game we had. It is recorded that William's brother Bowles Reeves worked in the school as an assistant, and apparently Bowles Reeves was also athletic and vigorous. Apparently no one could beat Bowles at throwing the boomerang. It is surprising indeed that the boomerang was known in that place and at that time. Reeves composed a long poem in elegant Latin about his pupils, joking about how much they would all enjoy leaving school to go home for the Christmas holidays. And it really reveals his affection for his pupils. The poem has been translated very nicely into English by someone, whether by Reeves himself or not, I don't know. But I'll read you part of it because the, the jests and the lightheartedness are very different from what we usually think of when we think about 19th century uh, schoolmasters. Dickens's Nicholas Nickleby with the horrid Dr. Gradgrind was published in the same decade that Reeves was writing.
So this is his little, or an extract from his little poem. Now it's right to raise our voices, Moorwood, Churchill, I, and Rosses, then McClelland, Matthews, Spring, hard work and sorrow headlong fling. Reeves's sing with all your might, Higginson's rejoice, tis right, McCrory too, and Jones's both, e'en the teacher is not loath, such the pleasures are at hand as the wintry hours command. I think probably some of his pupils were relations of his own, as well as the Reeveses who were either his sons or his nephews. The Higginses and the Joneses were more distantly connected through the Gayers. But for other pupils, as well as for the headmaster's relatives, the Balamina School was clearly a humane and enriching environment. Sadly, the happiness in Balamina came to an end, and the later years of Reeves's time in the town were darkened by the death of his wife, presumably of puerperal fever, a fortnight after she gave birth to their ninth child. The Ballymena Register records the baptism of Francis Reeves in September 1855, and then the burial of Emma Reeves on the 16th of October. The grieving husband's entries in Latin in the Register are indicative of his great love for his wife and they've been translated, Dearest and best beloved wife, with thyself thou hast taken away my first loves. May they be guarded and preserved in the silent tomb. Aitat 40. She was only 40. O qualis facie, qualis formae, quali ingenio. What form, what fashion, what a wonderful shape. Emma Reeves was his first cousin. They had met for the first time when they were both 18. He had gone on a visit to her family in England as a distraction from his grief after his own mother died of cholera. William Reeves remained a widower for 37 years, bringing up his nine children. And eventually he also raised the two children of one of his sons who died young. And that's the beautiful window that he placed in Ballymena Church. Very sadly, his wife's funeral was the first to take place in the new Church of Ireland church in Ballymena, which had been dedicated just two months earlier and which was one of Reeves's great prides and achievements. He had been chiefly responsible for raising the money for the handsome building, seeking subscriptions from his friends and relatives as well as locals, and he himself gave £220 out of his salary of £250 per annum. Could I have slide five, please? And that's actually a replacement building. The church that Reeves's subscriptions paid for was burned during Reeves's own lifetime, but this was built to replace it in the same style. Probably Reeves used part of his inheritance from his father who had died in 1852 to fund the generous donation of 220 pounds for this church. Even more generous was his decision that he was going to divide the whole estate 
which he had inherited as an eldest son with his brothers and sisters. And I'm sure that was not the usual situation. In 1847, Reeves published the Ecclesiastical Antiquities of Down and Connor. That was his own northern diocese. Tracing the histories of the parishes and of the ancient church buildings and containing a huge amount of other antiquarian information. It's based in its structure on, the, on his annotations of a medieval taxation list, but I can assure you it is much more fascinating than that rather unpromising basis suggests. Reeves had thoroughly explored many of the sites that he described, and he talked to locals to pick up traditions and local information. And that was at a time when you either had to walk or take out your horse and trap to spend hours traveling on bad roads. It was before the railways. The ancient place names in the taxation rule were all identified and given with the modern versions. And the book is also a record of wide research and thorough study of little-known histories and documents. And as well as amassing topographical information from Latin and Irish manuscripts and early books, Reeves drew on questionnaires which he had previously sent out to like-minded clergy throughout the diocese. Typically modest, Reeves acknowledged that the book had been put together under great disadvantages, a hundred miles from Dublin. I think it might be more than a hundred miles from Dublin, but he said a hundred. And in the midst of parochial engagements, which allowed of only occasional snatches for making the necessary inquiries, and while teaching in the school as well. And typically, again typically, Reeves acknowledged the help of many friends, he said. But the kindness of friends enabled the compiler to turn his time to the best advantage. To those friends, the warmest thanks are due. The Reverend Joseph Hunter, his assistant Walter Neeson for most polite attention, John O'Donovan for much valuable time and thought, J.W. Hanna for the benefit of his intimate knowledge of Lycale, James Henthorne Todd, manifold favours, both in the library of which he is a guardian and in his own library. We should remember that even getting information from friends in Ireland and England was not trivial at that period. It is recorded that one of Reeves' pupils in Ballymena posted 30 letters for him at one time and that stamps cost the clergyman 20 shillings a week. Those of us who did arithmetic before decimalization will remember how to work out a problem that begins if a stamp costs a penny, how many stamps would you get for a pound? 240 stamps today would cost over 160 euro in a week. Reeves followed up with an edition in 1850 of the Acts of Archbishop Cotton, Colton, I beg your pardon, relating to the Diocese of Derry, again displaying scholarship and a wide knowledge of sources and of classical languages but in this case, maybe not quite so much actual visits or local knowledge. His next book was also on a subject with strong northern associations, and he began work on it after his wife's death. 
His research, he said, brought him many seasons of relief from the sorrows of a troubled mind. And once again, as he often did, he stresses the importance of the genuine happiness in social or epistolary intercourse with dear and highly valued friends on either side of the channel. The book has been described as his most important. It's an edition of Adam Nan's Life of St. Columba, and it was published in 1857. Like all his other works, it displays great erudition and careful scholarship in its thousands of annotations, and it was recognized in its own day as a great achievement. It's no longer the standard version of the life, but scholars still consult the Reeves edition and appreciate in particular the insights that it contains. Surprisingly, Trinity College failed to appoint Reeves, although he had by now an international reputation to the chair of ecclesiastical history, which was vacant in 1857. But in that same year, his friend James Henthorne Todd secured for him the vicarage of Lusk in North Dublin. At Lusk, just as in Ballymena, Reeves contributed from his own resources to improve a local feature. He paid for repairs to the round tower at Lusk. Could I have the slide? Which was at that time in danger of collapse because it was unprotected from the elements and the pointing was suffering from the ingress of rain. And Reeves calculated that it would need uh, a top put on the, the tower to protect the masonry but he decided that a stone cap would be too heavy. He did the calculations and figured out that the stresses on the existing structure would destroy it. So he designed a flat, light, unobtrusive protecting covering with a wood strut framework and cement to keep the rain off the stones, and he himself painted it. Someone who knew him when he was in Lusk noted how busy Reeves was. As well as his parish work, he was teaching his own children. And he was secretary that year of the Royal Irish Academy. And he conscientiously attended all the evening meetings, although the, at that date there was a train, but it didn't stop in Lusk in the evenings. So he had to drive eight miles from Lusk to Malahide and back again after the meetings. And he wasn't ever home until after midnight on those evenings. Later, as diocesan librarian Armagh in Armagh from 1861 and rector of Tynan in County Armagh from 1865, Reeves is said to have prevented the destruction of the hugely important prehistoric Navan Fort just outside Armagh City. Could I have the slide? He apparently had sufficient gumption to check the lease and discovered that there was a clause in the lease which would mean that the tenant would forfeit the property if he allowed quarrying and he pointed this out and the tenant desisted otherwise he was going to quarry the whole thing away. On another occasion Reeves used 300 pounds of his own money to buy and thus to save the 9th century manuscript the book of Armagh. A year or two later, Archbishop Beresford did refund the money or reimburse him with the money, 
But Reeves retained possession of the manuscript, uh, hoping that he would be able to do an edition of it. He worked on it for years, although he often, when he uh, realized he was going to be particularly occupied, he often deposited it in a library so that others could see it. And when he traveled, he carried it about in a specially made satchel. But eventually, it was given to Trinity, and the, uh, Reeves's notes were used by John Gwynne in his 1913 edition. Reeves really enjoyed his time as librarian in the diocesan library at Armagh. Years later, he revisited the library, which he described as the noblest drawing room in Europe. Could I have the slide, please? That's one of the aspects of the Armagh Public Library. And the next slide also shows the elegant library in, in Armagh. Here I am, he said, in my old quarters at 7 a.m., surrounded by my darling old books, which nearly jumped down from the shelves to welcome their dear old keeper. So he was really happy among books and archives and manuscripts. He particularly enjoyed cataloging. His catalogue in four large manuscript volumes survives in Armagh Library and it is described as amazingly minute and full. Cataloguing and listing and indexing seems to have been Reeves's particular forte. He indexed the proceedings of the RIA, as well as 17 volumes of the works of Archbishop Usher. He made many transcriptions of early works and manuscripts, some for his own convenience so that he could work on them at home, and also often to help his colleagues and friends. For instance, when he was working on the martyrology of Donegal with James Henthorne Todd, Reeves made a copy of O'Curry's copy of the manuscript, and he further made a transcript of that for his friend John O'Donovan to translate, and he made still another for the printer in what was described as a style of Irish calligraphy almost rivaling that of Mr. O'Curry. Could I have the next slide? No. No, whether you can see in that Reeves' writing and then his ex extremely careful Irish script on this side. The text of this book as printed, with all the translations and the footnotes, filled 352 pages. So three copies of that made by hand is not a small endeavor. Reeves also made an alphabetical list in two folio volumes of the 62,000 townlands of Ireland so that he could analyze the distribution of townland names. Someone described it as a monster index. He compiled histories of his own parishes of Ballymena and Tynan, and a 52-page booklet, History of the Ancient Churches of Armagh. He wrote on ecclesiastical bells, he wrote on the Culdees, he wrote on Cranogs and Ulster. There were very few topics of antiquarian interest into which Reeves did not explore. It would take another full lecture to list and describe all his works, 
five volumes, scores of scholarly papers. I will refer you to the bibliography by John Ribton Garston, which occupies, the bibliography occupies 12 or 13 pages to list the works. And it's found in a life of William Reeves that was written by Lady Ferguson. And even the 12 or 13 pages lists only the published works. There were also tracts and sermons and scores of volumes of papers in manuscript, some almost ready to be published when Reeves died, and there were materials for works in progress. At least 40 large volumes of manuscripts were acquired after his death by various libraries, and he left during his lifetime numerous catalogues and indexes and copies of records in the various libraries in which he worked. Of lasting importance to the Church of Ireland were his two editions of the Book of Common Prayer, published without his name in 1852 and 1859. As Reeves' career went on, he had less and less leisure to work on scholarly projects as his responsibilities increased, and his responsibilities were all conscientiously carried out. For instance, when he became librarian in Armagh, he paid for a curate to look after the parish of Lusk, but he himself travelled back from Armagh to Lusk every Sunday to preach. In 1875, he was made Dean of Armagh, and then in 1886, he became Bishop of Down and Connor and Dromore. He was consecrated in 1886, aged 71, and he lived in Conway House, Dunmurray, for the rest of his life. Could I have the slide, please? And that's the rather grand house at uh, Conway House in Dunmurray, which I think became a hotel, and then I think got blown up, and now I think it's the scene of a housing estate. How, how are the mighty fallen? In the years that remained to Reeves, he wholeheartedly and energetically supported the work of the church, he dealt with all his correspondence himself. He never had a secretary. And he especially took thoughtful care of his clergyman. On one occasion, he wrote to the rector of Antrim, three months rest will restore you. The leave you seek, I give as bishop. And the treatment, which was the treatment of being on leave, I sanction as an honorary fellow of the College of Physicians. And he also offered to preach for the clergyman in Antrim so that the rector could rest. And he didn't want the rector's curate to have his holiday interrupted. So he traveled to Antrim to, to preach for him for three months. To help another curate in delicate health, he traveled from Dunmurray to Hillsborough to preach on eight successive Sundays. One of his clergymen ran a parish magazine for a year and to help him fill the pages, the bishop contributed four of the 12 articles that were published on local history. When he was bishop, the Reverend James McIndoe, a clergyman in the neighboring diocese of Armagh, was planning to give a lecture on the history of uh, the ceremony of confirmation in the church. The bishop wrote to him saying how much pleasure it gave him to encourage a young man and sent him a list of useful references on the subject, compiled with painstaking kindness and running to four 
handwritten foolscap pages for a very junior curate, not in his own diocese, that he did not personally know. My original idea for this talk was that it would be an exploration of the scholarly network within which Reeves did so much work. After all, he collaborated with most, probably all, of his contemporaries who were working on Irish ecclesiastical history, on the Irish language, and on early Ireland in general. John O'Donovan, James Henthorne Todd, Somerset Lowry Cole, the Earl Belmore, the Earl of Dunraven, Sir Samuel Ferguson, Lady Ferguson, he knew them all, swapped transcriptions, answered queries, and went out and about with them, measuring old churches. With John O'Donovan in particular, he enjoyed years and years of friendship and collaborative work. O'Donovan apparently often visited Reeves and Ballymena, where the two conversed in Irish, as Reeves tried to improve his knowledge of the language. He may have known some Irish from growing up in Cork, but although he loved the language, he never felt comfortable that he knew as much as he wanted to. Once he wrote to O'Donovan, I am about at last to fall to work and learn Irish in right earnest. I can no longer endure my own ignorance, especially as I feel that once I broke the ice, I should be able to do something in the way of augmenting the knowledge of our ancestral tongue. If I had but a month of bona fide study at your elbow, how I would dash on. But here, banished and downcast and distracted my various cares, my way is very uphill. And he went on to say, Oh, is it not a scandal to England to have her professors of Sanskrit and her students rummaging the Himalayas while there is not one to cast a longing look on Ireland and fetch the most curious language of Europe out of its literary seclusion? And Reeves's commitment to scholarship and to Ireland's past and to his church are equally more than commendable. He really cared about scholarship in its widest sense. He once wrote, when once a man of education shuts his eyes to facts and suffers love of country or any other predilection to surpass love of truth, he should be outlawed in letters. An important aspect of work in the Dictionary of Irish Biography for me is the feeling that you are getting to know interesting people who just happened to have lived in the past. As I got to know Reeves better in the course of researching this talk, I understood that his character, his interests, and his friendships form a unified whole and a rounded personality. And that's why he is such an important figure, almost unique in my experience of interesting people in the past. His friendship and his generosity and his warmth extend it to everyone from all backgrounds, not just to scholarly or clerical colleagues. It is indicative of Reeves's ability to attract friendship and the love of his friends. In a letter written by John Hanna from Downpatrick, he wrote a long letter, very long letter, in 1857 to the Lord Lieutenant to seek for more recognition of Reeves's qualities and contribution to scholarship. 
He wrote, As a minister of religion, I am advised, he is most zealous and faithful, the exemplar of a good clergyman, winning the love of his own church and conciliating the friendship and respect of all other denominations. His works, requiring the most extensive research, were composed in hours stolen from the night. Hannah's plea for his friend is given still more weight when he writes, I am not a member of Dr. Reeves's church. I am a Roman Catholic in humble life. He is, I believe, a moderate conservative in politics, never obtruding himself publicly in that domain, while I am a liberal, perhaps Whiggish, Therefore, I have no party object in wishing his promotion. As we approach St. Patrick's Day, it's interesting to note that Reeves customarily wore shamrock on the day, though that was not at all common for Protestants. And the parish priest of Ballymena wrote after Reeves's death, I really loved him. There is lots of evidence about Reeves's great humanity and friendliness. And apparently in his northern parishes, he knew all his parishioners by name and made it his practice to visit households twice a year regularly. And also it gave him pleasure to make his visits coincide as his tenacious memory and accuracy of record enabled him to do with the anniversary of some family occurrence, a wedding, birth or funeral. He retained an interest in his parishioners even after they moved away or emigrated. And years later, he would go back to visit people from all classes, not just the gentry or professionals that he had got to know in his several parishes. His obituary states, he showed a generous bearing to all his fellow men, no matter how widely separated from him in habits and training. And he was as considerate of his poorest parishioner as for any of the rich and powerful whose friendship and confidence he so largely enjoyed. And his good friend, Lady Ferguson, wrote, It is a happy lot to possess through life the power of making and retaining friends. Such gifts transcend the worth of fame, and in turn, the worth of fame transcends the worth of gold. And these gifts eminently belong to William Reeves, himself a faithful friend, Generous, warm-hearted and true, he deserved and won the hearts of others. One and all will bear witness to that lovableness of disposition which drew towards his lordship even more than admiration for his distinguished ability and great attainments, the love of his friends. That's my tribute to a very great man, William Reeves, Bishop of Down and Connor. Thank you.